Well, first of all, I just want to thank Pastor John and the elders for giving me the opportunity to come before you tonight. It's a privilege to open up God's word to you. Um, for some reason, I feel like I should call for another offering, but that's just because I'm a creature of habit. And uh, <laughs> we'll let that. Thank you, ACS, for what you did. Now, most of you know that just recently we had a Puritan conference here where Joel Beakey, who was the founder of that Puritan conference, had a Christmas time book that he has titled, Why Christ Came. And in that book, he has 31 meditations about the incarnation of Christ that are all very, very familiar to us. And on the 29th meditation, he mentions the subject of Christ coming to satisfy our deepest thirst. And that subject really gripped my attention. To say that Christ came to save sinners, to, to say that he would bring light to a dark world or, or receive worship and all the following reasons are all true and all very, very gripping. But the subject of our Lord being a baby and coming to earth from heaven merely to satisfy his creation's deepest thirst and deepest longings and hunger, that was the most gripping meditation of all. That God, very God, would descend from heaven, become a man, just to ensure that those whom he created would be satisfied in the deepest place of their hunger and thirst seemed almost fantastical. To know that Christ came to save us from our sins, to know that Christ came to grant us eternal life, To know that Christ came to destroy death and all of those themes seem very logical and very fitting. But to say that Christ came to satisfy my deepest thirst, to say that Christ came to satisfy my deepest hunger seems almost anthrocentric, like human focused and not theocentric at all. And yet what we're going to learn tonight, this evening, is that Christ came to die so that your greatest need will be satisfied in him. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Ironically, of course, providentially, this message comes just days after Thanksgiving. And what's amazing about Thanksgiving is that that time is where most people stuff themselves with turkey and gravy and martinelli's and pumpkin pie until not only are they satisfied, but to the point where they promise themselves they're never going to eat or drink again. And, and how many times did you hear this last Thursday, the phrase, I can't take another bite or, or I, I can't swallow one more, you know, fill in the blank, whatever it is. That's why they call it stuffing, by the way. Yet it's also ironic that Thanksgiving is the time most famously known for this concept called leftovers. And so, ironically, the idea is the next day of Thanksgiving, or sometimes just the next few hours after the meal is celebrated, they heat up that same meal once again, the same meal that moments before you swore I would never eat another bite of it or eat another bite of it again, and there it is. The expression, I can't eat anymore, quickly becomes, what's in the fridge? I mean, someone went to the trouble of bringing an Oreo cheesecake from the Cheesecake Factory to our Thanksgiving meal and to leave it all by itself, abandoned and alone in the refrigerator. Well, it would be wrong. And to that little slither of pumpkin pie leaning next to it, leaning almost as if needed the cheesecake support, feeling isolated and and discarded, it would be discouraging, would you not say, to not eat that again, right? 
So regardless of how full you are, regardless of how much you believe that you would never, ever eat again, here's the point. You eat and drink again. Our thirst and our hunger is never satisfied. And we all know this. And I think that begs the question tonight, why? Why is it that we were created to hunger and thirst? Why why weren't we created to never need food or drink? Why weren't we created to never long for, never hunger for, never thirst for that sustenance that consumes us? Because God could have done that. God could have created us with the ability to never need food, to never consume, to never eat, to never thirst, to never hunger, to never need anything. But he didn't. He didn't. Acts fourteen seventeen gives us a good sense of the answer when the apostle Paul says this. He says, and yet he, God, did not leave himself without witness. In other words, he left a witness of himself to the world in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling your hearts with food and gladness. He doesn't say filling your mouths with food and gladness. He says filling your hearts. So do you see the filling of our hearts with food and gladness is a witness that God exists and it comes to us through our own longings. In other words, God has created this human creation for longing, for satisfaction, in this case, food, as a reminder that God exists and God should be sought. To say it in a different way, we've been created by God so that the composition of our frame is designed in such a way where we are not only created in the image of God, but also we are designed to long for that satisfaction that only comes from God to recognize God as God. And I want to focus on that reality just for a moment as we begin our time together. This longing for God, this this true and living God is vividly depicted in the Bible, specifically in the Psalms. Psalm 42, 1 says, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Psalm 63, one says, oh God, you are my God and I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land without water. Even the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 55, one says, ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight your soul in richness. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that your soul might live. So there is this truth clearly in scripture that our hunger and our thirst is not just only a living reality in our physiology, but relief from them is in the composition, the consuming preoccupation for the people of God. If you go back even to the very, very beginning, this longing for satisfaction, this desire in many ways could be seen really as the underlining reason for the first sin. The very first temptation was Eve wanting to be satisfied in her hunger by consuming that which was not good, but she saw the fruit as desirable. So from the very, very beginning, the struggle of mankind has been seen as sin, hungering and thirsting for that which could never conquer our thirst. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 5, 6, 
that mankind is only truly blessed when they hunger and thirst to be satisfied with the righteousness that can only come from God. So this is the quality of hungering and thirsting that we're going to look at tonight. It was Augustine who said, Great are you, O Lord, and exceedingly worthy of praise. You arouse us so that praising you may bring us joy because you have made us and drawn us to yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. It's what compelled Pascal to write, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any other created thing, but only by God, the Creator, made known through Jesus. So hopefully that sets the stage for you tonight as we contemplate why Christ came, why he came to satisfy our deepest thirst. And to put this in perspective for you, I want to spend the rest of our time in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John because it's here that we're going to see, I think, most vividly the most glorious expression of the reason that the Savior came to earth and manifested in a scene from his life where he came to a lonely woman who was thirstier than she ever knew. So if you would, just turn to your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 4. And as you're turning there, I want you to know it's important that this entire scene that we're going to study tonight is the longest recorded conversation we have in all of Scripture between our Lord and one of his creations. It is recorded nowhere else in Scripture. And get this, it had to happen. It had to happen. And I say that because verse 4 tells us that Jesus had to pass through to Samaria. Verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. He had found out in context that the Pharisees knew that he was becoming more and more influential with the people in his area and that he was making more disciples than John the Baptist. And so for reasons that we are not told, he chooses to leave Judea and make his way into Galilee. And many people at this point will point out to you that there are different ways to travel from Judea into Galilee. But this travel plan of the Lord was not one that came out of expediency. This travel plan came from a determination to do the will of his father. He had to pass through Samaria. Our Lord came to earth for many different interrelated reasons that all culminate with his desire to save his people from their sins. But the overarching reason that hangs over every other reason was that Jesus came to do the will of his father. Later in the chapter, verse 34, he tells his disciples this very thing. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Our Lord's driving motivation, his, his food, his drink, his satisfaction, first and foremost, was to do what the Father willed him to do. And that's why he had to go through Samaria. I think we see in just verse 4 and verse 34 the reflection of really what this entire story is aiming to teach us. And we're going to see this develop as we move through this brilliant narrative together. So let's begin this excursion with verse 6 at the very end. It tells us it was the sixth hour. 
It was the sixth hour, most likely a reference to Jewish time, which makes it 12 p.m. noon rather than Roman time, which is 6 p.m. I say that because if it was 6 p.m., there would be many more women there fetching water uh, for their families. They were at a well, which was customary to come out either early in the morning or right before dusk, so it would be cool, and that would be obvious for people to be there. But there's no one there in the account we're about to see. So this takes place, this account, at noon, in the dead of heat, when a wearied Savior is going to come upon the scene. And he enters the story at the exact time that a refreshing drink of water would have been all that he needed the most. And then entering from stage left is a wanton Samaritan woman. And they both are there for a divine reason that only he knows, but she is surely going to find out. Reason being, he had to come through Samaria. Now, I want to break this down with you scene by scene in different actions. If you're taking notes, different reactions that take place within these two people, there's going to be a myriad of them, so I'm not going to give them to you up front. Let's just kind of go through them quickly as we see them unfold in this narrative. So if you're taking notes, you can first title this first movement or this first interaction as the weary Savior meets the wounded sinner. The weary Savior meets the wounded sinner. And we see this in John 4 through 7. Let's begin in verse 5. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. I want you to notice that there is not a time limit between the first part of verse 7 and the latter part of verse 7. It's unknown to us exactly what happened in the time frame from the time it says water to the time it says Jesus There could have been a very long silence there. There could have been uh, uh, only the sound of wind passing between the two of them. Surely she must have seen the weary Jewish Savior sitting at the well before she arrived. Uh, Surely she must have seen that he had no way to get water for himself. William Barclay tells us that when people were on a journey, they usually carried a, a bucket made of skin of some kind of beast so that they could draw water from the well that they were going through. But no doubt Jesus' disciples had such a bucket, but no doubt they had taken it into town with them. Surely she must have seen this as he was weary because verse 6 tells us that, Jesus being wearied from his journey. Very important, this word, because this word in the Greek means labor, fatigue. It's actually used in secular Greek of a beating. It speaks of intense, hard, wearisome toll, even to the point of utter exhaustion. Jesus Christ was the most fit man ever to walk the earth, and yet the burden of his ministry pushed him even to his own physical limitations. And that must have been obvious to her. It must have been obvious that this Jewish man was in need And yet, she doesn't speak to him. So, there they are. She's bringing out the water for herself. She seems to have no access to the water. He has no access to it. And there's no acknowledgement at all of his presence. 
Now, if you know the story at all, granted, there might have been silence because of what she later says, as we shall see, that Samaritans have no dealings or interactions with Jews due to the grand divide that separated them. More on that in a moment. But some of that silence also might be that her dealings with men was her weak point. You see, she had been wounded by men. I say that because the well in ancient times was a meeting place. It was not just for water. It was a place of socialization and many times even for betrothal, even for marriages. Writers have noticed all throughout ancient times that as the young men likely went out together to collect the water, as the young women went out to collect water, young men of the village realized that that gave them a perfect opportunity to socialize with the women away from the watchful eyes of their fathers and male relatives. The Old Testament recounts many times that women meet their future spouses at wells. Abraham's servant stopped at a well, and that's where he met Rebekah, Genesis 24. Jacob met Rachel at a well where she came to get water for her father's flock. That's Genesis 29, 1 through 11. Moses even found his future wife at a well when he came with her sisters, Exodus 2, 15 through 22. So for her to see a man, a single man, sitting next to a well was not a comfortable situation for her. It wasn't a comfortable situation because this particular Samaritan woman had a past of making wrong decisions when it came to men. Perhaps she was determined this time just to come to get the water she needed and leave without any dialogue, any interactions. And so she came just to draw water, seeing a weary Jewish man sitting at the well without any means of getting a drink. And yet she decides not to engage with him. So there they were both just at the well, both silent. If there was going to be any conversation, it would have to be the weary Savior that would reach out to her. The weary Savior would have to reach out for her, for remember, he came to earth and he had to pass through Samaria. If there was going to be an opportunity to fulfill his consuming passion of saving souls, it was going to have to be Jesus that would break the silence, weary as he was. You know, Jesus was the most weary on the cross. The moment when Jesus was suffering the most was at the same moment that he reached out to the thief on the cross in his lowest place of physical strength. He still did the work of the Father. Because it was his food. Because that's what he fed upon. It was his sustenance. And so Jesus is portrayed to us never being too weary. Never being too tired. Never being too distracted to save, to reach out. And so it is here as well. She won't reach out to him, so he reaches out to her. So the weary Savior has met the wounded sinner. Now we transition to the next series of responses between them. In light of what we've just seen, now we see, number two, the weary Savior overlooks the sinner's avoidance. The weary Savior overlooks the sinner's avoidance. And let me show you what I mean. Look at the seven, second part of verse seven. Jesus says to her, give me a drink. He initiates. He's the one that begins the conversation. He knows that her need is far greater than his own. And yet, instead of condemning her for not recognizing his need, he lovingly gives her an opportunity to recognize her own need by a simple request. 
He overlooks her doubt. He overlooks her bias. He overlooks her avoidance. And he says to her, give me a drink. Many people over the years have just noticed this, the brilliance of the uniqueness of this moment in evangelism of our Lord's life. He chooses the literal situation, literally being needing a drink from a well to accomplish the spiritual end that he had in mind. We see the same thing with the Apostle Paul when he's talking to the Athenian philosophers and he uses the altar of an unknown God and he sees it in his surroundings and so he uses it as a tool to evangelize those who know nothing about the Old Testament. Well, such is the Lord's use of his environment here as well. He had come to her, he knew she would be there and now he uses what is before us in this well of water to reveal to her her greatest need. And he does that by saying, give me a drink. This is not a demand. This is an appeal. It's a plea. It's a request for her to acknowledge his presence. It's a request for her to acknowledge that he was right there before her. He's a stranger in a strange land with profound needs. It's a request for her to notice what so clearly should have been something that she would have seen if she wasn't so overcome, listen, by her own guilt and sin and worldliness and woundedness and biases, that a man who was strange to her was extending an invitation for her to notice his presence so that he could acknowledge her need. It's very important that we notice that no matter how lost you are in your circumstances, no matter how you might feel or seem to be, no matter how beyond repair you feel your life has become, there is a Savior who finds his greatest desire in pleasing his Father and by extension finds his greatest desire in satisfying what you so desperately lack. For he came to satisfy his chosen creation's deepest longing and thirst as we shall see. And so Jesus, at his most obvious state of neediness, reaches out to the one who is hiding her need to grant her what she needs. James Montgomery Boyce, commentator, says, Here was a Jesus who was not wearied merely by the heat. He could have stayed in the cooler area of the Jordan. Here was a Jesus who was wearied in his search for sinners and who had become thirsty seeking those to whom he was to offer the water of life, end quote. Even as the God-man, he doesn't need to request her help. You understand, he, he's God, very God. He could have easily fulfilled his own longings for water. He, he created the water himself. He could have just have easily done it as he did with the ceremonial water jars, make them into wine in chapter two. He could have commanded the water to ascend up through the well into his mouth by a single command, but he doesn't. He grants this wounded woman, this Samaritan half-breed, the opportunity to give to him what she would so eagerly have done had she known who it was that was speaking to her. It's at this time in verse 8 that the Apostle John lets us know that the 11 had left the area to get provisions for the Lord and themselves. And according to one New Testament scholar, Alfred Eldersheim, most likely that leaves the Apostle John to be the only witness of what transpired between these two strangers. I say that knowing that they would never leave the Lord by himself 
himself in a situation like this, the whole narrative reads as if it was one who was there. And so either the apostle John was far enough away where the woman felt as if she was alone with Jesus, or perhaps he was not there at all. But regardless, we are given this eyewitness account of this wanton woman hearing the Lord's request and just waiting for her reply. If you're going to label the next moment of this scene, you might say we go to now the wounded sinner challenges the Savior's intentions. The wounded sinner challenges the Savior's intentions, and we see this in verse 9. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How do you, being a Jew, ask for a drink from me, being a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The whole conversation up to this point was completely inappropriate in her perspective for many different reasons. Though she doesn't speak of it, the customs of the day would surely address that he being a man would not be seen in a situation like that speaking to a woman. We know that by the apostles' reactions to this later on in this chapter, verse 27, it says, and this point his disciples came and they were marveling that he was speaking with a woman and yet no one said, what you seek or who are you, why are you speaking with her? So to the disciples, the issue when they returned later on in this story was not that she was a Samaritan, but that she was a woman. But that's not what she speaks of here. The issue in her interaction was the fact that the Lord was speaking not to a woman. She makes it about the fact she, he's speaking to a Samaritan. Perhaps addressing the Samaritan side of the coin is just a safer place to acknowledge. Perhaps acknowledging the racial part of the scenario was less risky than addressing the fact that she was alone with a man at an awkward time. Either way, both issues were true. But just to fill in the historical gap for some that may not know, because the Israelite inhabitants of Samaria had intermarried with foreigners and adopted their idolatrous religion, Samaritans were generally considered half-breeds, and they were universally despised by the Jews. And I say they had an idolatrous religion because Samaritans rejected the writings of the prophets, uh, including the histories of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. They rejected the wisdom literature of Proverbs, Psalms, Job, Ecclesiastes, etc. Because all of the emphasis of those readings in the Old Testament focused on Jerusalem and David's line, and they were determined to ignore that. So the Samaritans limited their Torah, their first five books, as being the only canonical books that were inspired by God. And therefore, they had a mixture of a religion that was kind of both Judaism and idolatry. The only men that this woman had ever known were fallen men. And she questioned, therefore, this Jew's intentions. The only kind of men she'd ever known had intentions that she was vulnerable to. The only kind of men she ever had known would have been resting at the well by themselves at noontime when no one else was around, only to have had those evil intentions manifest for her. So perhaps it makes total sense that she would question Jesus' intentions. And as we shall see, this Samaritan woman had lived a life thirsting for the love of men. Her deepest thirst as far as she could see, was this deep desire for those things that only a man could grant her. Her deepest thirst was her vulnerability to physical needs. 
her vulnerability to emotional needs, vulnerable to wanting to be wanted, vulnerable to being taken care of, and yet something had gone terribly, terribly wrong in her life. And so Jesus has to come to her and ask for help, which could have very easily been misunderstood as a request for something else. And so she protects herself by addressing the prohibition of his Jewishness rather than his manliness. You have to understand, most people never come face-to-face with the wonders of God. Most people never come face-to-face with the divine. They never come face-to-face with absolute purity and honesty and virtue and love and righteousness. So when they come face-to-face with God, as she truly is doing, they are afraid. They question the motives. They, They question because they doubt the pursuit of God for them. And they pull back from his call and they make excuses for not believing. And they wrongly believe that such a love is even possible. Such is the life of this wounded woman. Which leads us to the next verse, which we might call the next part of this scene where we understand the transition from the wanton sinner challenging his intentions to, number four, the weary Savior exposing the sinner's need. Now we see the weary sinner expose the sinner's need. Verse 10, look with me at that. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Notice, I want you to see that Jesus exposes something to this wanton sinner that she doesn't know about herself. Number one, she doesn't know who she's talking to. And number two, she doesn't know what she really needs. Two imperative truths for this Samaritan woman. When Jesus Christ walked the earth 2,000 years ago as God, he walked on this terrestrial ball as the creator of the universe who chose to become flesh, who chose to become human and walk among us, the one who made all things, the one who made this woman that he is speaking to, the one who actually fashioned her while she was still in her mother's womb, the one who would ultimately die for her sins, all that she has committed, past, present, and future, this man veiled in human Jewish flesh is standing before her as the king of all creation, and yet she doesn't know it. If you knew, Jesus says, if you knew. You know, when you open the pages of Holy Scripture and you read these words or you hear Jesus being explained, you are actually coming into immediate context with the one who not only granted you life, not only who gave you the life that you used to breathe, but is the only one who can grant you spiritual life and spiritual satisfaction because as you're going to see, he is the source of all the needs and longings. He alone can provide what the sinner really needs. If you only knew, he says, who it is that speaks tonight through the explanation of his word, then your entire life would change. Your entire grasp of reality would change and shift because you would be able, by the assistance of the Holy Spirit, to have all your greatest needs taken care of. And please don't think that when I'm saying that your greatest needs can be met, that I am saying or telling you that Jesus is going to make you happy, that Jesus will make you wealthy, that Jesus will make you feel better, and Jesus will make you successful or smarter or take away your pain, because that's not what I'm saying. 
You say, but that's what I need. But you don't know what you need. And she didn't know what she needed. And she doesn't know what she doesn't know. And she doesn't know the gift he speaks of, and she doesn't know the giver who is speaking to her himself. The gift of God that Jesus speaks of is salvation. It's the gift of God, regeneration. And I ask you, so why is Jesus so assured that if she knew the gift and she knew the giver, that she would ask him for the water that he offered? Because, you know, not everyone who asks God and grant, knows that God grants salvation comes to him. Not everyone who knows that Jesus is the only one who can grant eternal life ask him for the salvation. They might recognize the gift of eternal life. They might recognize that Jesus Christ is the only grantor of that eternal life, but they don't want it. They don't want to give up the pleasures of this world to enjoy the pleasure of the one who made the world. They don't want to turn their backs on the sin that is killing them, even though the great physician is offering them life forever. They don't want to turn from the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life because they love what is condemning them more than the offer of rescuing them. But not this woman. Not this woman. The Lord knew, the weary Savior knew that if she knew the gift and if she knew the giver, that she would ask because he knew from the beginning of time who it is that would hear his voice. She was going to come to him and she was going to find her deepest needs satisfied in him and she was going to realize that the babe in the manger who had come to earth to seek her out and die for her sins, but she didn't know yet what she didn't know, but he knew. He knew from the very beginning and that's why he came and that's why he came through Samaria and that's why he had to come through Samaria. Because Jesus is always seeking those who hear his voice to quench their thirst. And so he tells them, he would have given you living water. Had you asked him, he would have given you living water. Now, this is a turning point in this whole scenario. John MacArthur notes, when the conversation began, he was the thirsty one and she was the one with the water. Now he spoke as if she were the thirsty one and he was the one with the water. You see, just as his intentions were with Nicodemus in John 3, Jesus immediately shifts the conversation from the literal physical to the metaphysical spiritual. And Jesus uses this statement to draw the woman into a, a deeper conversation, a deeper understanding. Why do I say that? They both know that the water that they are speaking of is supposedly coming from the well that's right before them. This is Jacob's well. It's well spoken of, but it's only specifically referred to here in the Bible. And we're going to speak to that more in just a moment. But just so you know, we understand clearly that even without any kind of special ex explanation, the, the well provides water. But what's not often pointed out is the word for well in verse 6 that the Apostle John uses and the word for well later on translated in verse 11 and 12 that the Samaritan woman uses are different. When John speaks of the well, he speaks of this running spring. But when the woman speaks of the well, she speaks of a cistern or a dugout well. So Jacob's well is both. It's dug out, it's fed from an underground stream, but perhaps she didn't know that. Maybe she didn't know what she didn't know. Perhaps from 
her perspective, the well was stagnant and, and like a cistern. And so when he says, I will give you this living water, she was thinking maybe it was like a stream. Maybe there was a better kind of water. But there was something more here than just this offer of better water. There was something more here than just this quality that she wanted. There were these words of Jesus that he uttered in the beginning because he said it's the gift of God. The gift of God. Maybe she didn't know that Jesus perhaps was making use of the Jewish thought that the gift of God, the supreme gift of God was the Torah. If that's what the Lord is referring to here, then he's saying to the woman, if you knew your Torah, if you actually understood the Torah, the only five books the Samaritans believed and who it was that were speaking to you, then you would have responded in a different fashion. He's targeting her real need. He's targeting and addressing her real thirst, but she wasn't ready yet to admit it. And she's not ready to reveal her real thirst, so we move on. We move on to the next exchange in this unfolding drama. We go from the weary Savior exposes the sinner's need to now, verse 11, the wounded sinner deflects the Savior's revelation. The wounded sinner deflects the Savior's revelation. And we see this in verse 11. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? It's interesting that she still uses the respectful title of sir when she's speaking to the Lord, but she pretends, she deflects what she could have sensed through his words. She almost changes the subject. It's as if she knows that the subject is spiritual, but she pretends, she, she deflects and she does that what so many people do when they're confronted with the reality of the Savior, Jesus Christ. If they're elect, they sense the gravity of the truth before them, before they believe, but they delay, they delay responding. She deflects this gracious, gracious revelation that the Lord has presented to her, and she speaks to him literally instead of symbolically. She, she could have said, who are you? She, she could have said, what gift of God are you talking about? But instead of addressing the obvious, she obscures what he's saying, and she opts to respond to his words as if she didn't get it. She's not clear. You see, woundedness can do that to you. Hiding sin can make you confuse obvious things. So she speaks to him about the most simple thing she can possibly imagine and still somehow kind of connect to the conversation, and namely, the means through which he gets this water. In other words, his lack of having a bucket instead of his identity or the gift of God. He comes from heaven. He comes, he's born as a human. He's ultimately going to die to save her soul, to quench her thirst. But her sin, her fear of judgment, her, her fear of her hidden life coming out and being obvious doesn't allow her to come to him. She can only focus on just the most inconsequential part of his speech just to delay the inevitable. This is the heart of a sinner. And then she makes this odd leap in logic, a somewhat telling statement is much more focused on like hyperbole than the flow of thought. She says, how can you get living water without a bucket? You must be thinking you're a greater man than our father Jacob. So even though she was a wounded woman 
who soiled, had a life that was soiled with sin, she still had some religious background. She still had some religious kind of Sunday school thoughts that swam around in her head. And when she felt as if she was being addressed in a spiritual sense, she let Christ know that she has some religious knowledge too. And so she's going to do this for the rest of the conversation, bit by bit, sentence by sentence, slowly revealing whatever Samaritan religion that she has been raised to understand to obfuscate the divine revelation she's being confronted with. And I say that because there's no real sense in which Jacob was ever the father of the Samaritans. As we have said, the Samaritans of our Lord's time were like a hybrid race. They were outside of Judaism. So even her religious assumptions are kind of empty and vain. And in addition to that, there's a sense that really she's kind of toying with the Lord, that she is being coy, that she's speaking to him as a man, like every man she'd ever known, appealing to his bravado of being great and not as a divine counter with the truly great one. Jacob's well, as I told you earlier, was never spoken of in the Old Testament. It was never knowledge as a well there. And so whatever knowledge she might have about Jacob's well came from extra biblical sources. So her her statement is sheer tradition. The, The book of Genesis does not record Jacob ever digging a well, much less drinking from it. So this idea probably just, again, is coming back to her association of being a Samaritan woman. And so she accounts Jacob's move as being something that might have alluded to a well, but it's all extra biblical. And I I say that to you because you're going to notice this with conversations that you have with those that have been uh, evangel when you're evangelizing either Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or Roman Catholics or, or any other of the myriad of Christian cults, they're going to be confronted with truth, and then they cling to their quasi-religious upbringing to deflect the truth. They, they, they try to think of the traditions that they were taught so they don't have to deal with the truth that you're presenting. And so this entire response is a deflection to Christ's gracious revelation. It's at this point that we see the next piece of the dialogue move to this Jesus plays off of this deflection. Now, number six, the weary Savior presents the sinner an offer. The weary Savior presents the sinner an offer. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst ever but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. I love the Legacy Standard Bible's translation here. Whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never thirst ever, ever. Because it just expresses this straightforwardness of what Christ is communicating, which is what men and women have always longed for since the beginning to never thirst again, to find that wonderful fountain of youth, uh, to find the, the water of life, as the Brothers Grimm's fairy tale said, to, to find that elixir that you could bathe in or wash in, and, and all of a sudden you're new again. But there is no water of life. There is no water that someone can drink or bathe in that's going to grant eternal life. But Jesus here uses water as a metaphor, and he speaks of water that springs up to eternal life. Some people call this the water of life discourse because Jesus is so clear. He knows her heart. He knows the game that she's playing with him. 
And he knows that she needs some very direct communication. And so he tells her while sitting at the well of Jacob, everyone who drinks of this well will thirst again. Now that's a very literal truth, right? That's a very literal thing. Everyone who drinks of any water one day will thirst again. They'll be thirsty the entirety of their lives, but they will be thirsty for, Jesus says, this water, not the water that I will offer. So what's the difference? It it could be that the Lord is just merely comparing the earthly with the spiritual. He did that with Nicodemus, and that could be enough. It could be enough to spur the Samaritan woman to wonder, well, what is this kind of water that Jesus is offering that alleviates thirst forever? Is it the water that came from Jacob? Is it somehow inferior to the water that this weary Savior is offering us? And the answer is, absolutely. The one before her is the greater person, is greater in his offer. But in addition to that, if you drink from the living water, he says it becomes a well within you. That is a well within you that springs up to eternal life. What does that mean? Dr. Mark Zakevich In his book, Follow Me, The Benefits of Discipleship in the Gospel of John makes the following comments. The water of life refers to Jesus' revelation, which conveys salvific content that leads to eternal life and the spirit who collaborates with Jesus to confer eternal life. So the water Jesus gives is true life forever for all who possess it. This is the first of many times in the book of John that the nevers of John, the never, never thirst, never hunger, never walk in darkness, never see death, death, taste death, never perish, never die. That's what the book of John is known for. But here he says that you will never thirst again. So, so much is being offered to her, so much before her eyes. And now the scene shifts to the next moment in the conversation. Namely, the wounded sinner accepts the Savior's proposal. And we're going to see this in verse 16. The woman, excuse me, verse 15. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come back here to draw. Now on the outside, that seems as if she got something here. As if on the outside, it seems like she's moving in the right direction. But obviously, she's still not letting Jesus' words penetrate her soul. In fact, her acceptance of this proposal is in quotation marks in my mind because there's still this veneer of sarcasm and worldliness in her wording. And I say worldliness because this woman is not dumb. She is not simple-minded. She's smart. She's too smart. She has accepted too many proposals before. And she knows that this weary traveling Jew is offering something greater than she can comprehend, something greater than she seemingly maybe is in spiritual nature. But still there's this odd acceptance to only a portion of what Jesus is holding before her. So she's asking for a portion of what he's proposing, but not the whole. It's as if she's saying, you know, it's clear to me that you want to give me something. And it's clear to me that you want to offer me something, but I can't seem to put my finger on exactly what it is that you want to give me. But seeing that this is the longest conversation I've ever had with a Jewish man before, I'm guessing that whatever it is, I'm just going to go with it. I don't fully get what you're saying. I don't fully want to grasp the supernatural part of your offer. But if there's something in it for me here, I'm open to it. And you know what? There's always something that holds the sinner back. 
There's always something. It's, it's, it's always, well, it seems intellectual, but truly it's never really intellectual. What holds a person back from grasping the offer of quenching their spiritual thirst is that they don't want to stop drinking from the earthly cistern. It's as if she's saying, I can't let myself take you in and your offer of never, ever being thirsty again because I kind of like being thirsty. I kind of like being thirsty in the way that I'm a thirsty person, a person who will probably never stop thirsting for what this world has for me. So she just kind of plays along with Jesus' offer, whatever it is that he seems to be offering. And I say that because it seems that her words can be measured in a moment in this scene against what the weary Savior counters, which is our next point. The weary Savior counters the sinner's offer. The weary Savior counters the sinner's offer. And you see this in verse 16. He said to her, go, call your husband and come back here. Now, this is bold stuff. This is strong request. He, he says not only, go get your husband, which is probably a half a mile away, but then he says, and then bring him back with you to prove it. You accept my proposal, then prove you're serious. But of course, there's much more to this than meets the eye. Jesus knows what's the obstacle in her soul. Jesus knows what is hardening her heart to accept the will of water springing up to eternal life. And so he counters her proposal in such a way to bring an obstacle into her life. Go call your husband. This woman had been thirsting for intimacy her whole life. She was so longing for intimacy with men that she figured she would never be able to stop. She would never let herself grasp having a life where something greater could consume her. She couldn't imagine living a life without trying to fill that void that Pascal spoke of by having a man in her life. And Jesus now is going to give her the opportunity to finally face that, to face what is counterfeit, to face what she's been enslaved to, what she drinks from. Which leads to the next moment. The next moment is the wanton sinner confesses her partial condition. The wanton sinner confesses her partial condition. You see that just in the very beginning of verse 17. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Now that must have been a very difficult confession for her to make, a shameful confession. She didn't blush. She hasn't blushed most likely for years being single or being married, she knew it wasn't any concern of a Jewish traveler. She could at that moment when he said that departed, she could have pretended to go get her husband, I'll be right back and then never come back. But instead she decided to give this half truth as we shall see. She could have had this request as a way to get out of Dodge, but still there's a brazenness in her with her interactions. And so she says, I have no husband. Listen, you can confess something in your life that is wrong. You can confess in your life something is missing and damaging and still not be moved in your heart about the reality of what you're confessing as being the impediment to your soul. You just kind of stare it back at the face of God and you go, yep, that's my life. And then God stares right back into your soul. And you don't know what the next moment is going to be. And so here again, we don't know the amount of time that transpires between her confession and Jesus' next statement here, but this is where everything slows down a notch. 
This is where all of a sudden we see the weary Savior revealing his omniscience. The weary Savior reveals his omniscience. And you see that in the second part of verse 17. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband. For you had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. This you have truly said. This is when your stomach drops. This is when deep down inside your breath is taken away. What did he just say? What did he just say to me? Not only is this man a total stranger to me, but he's also a total stranger to this entire area, and he knows my past love life. How does he know that? Later on in chapter 4, verse 39, she tells the townspeople, he told me all the things I have done. So perhaps this is just a portion of what he told her here in verse 18, or, or else what the Lord says about her five husbands felt like he told her everything she had done. But either way, she had been exposed for who she really was, and Christ had exposed who he really is. He is omniscient. He was more than a man. He knew all things. John 2, 25 says, He did not need to testify about mankind, for he knew himself what was in mankind. Look, when Jesus came into the world, he came in to make sure that this woman would no longer thirst for the things that cannot satisfy. But before you can do that, he needed to expose to her that she was thirsting for that which was killing her. Some people comment about the number of wives that was acceptable in Jewish or, or Samaritans, but it suffice it to say, five marriages, that tells you the story. I had a roommate years ago whose mother and father had divorced and remarried three times to each other. I can't live with them. I can't not live with them. I, I, I don't want to live with them. I have to live with them. But here, this has been five weddings, five divorces, and it seemed as if the man she now is with, is, that she's not married to, doesn't look very good. By the way, Pastor John points out here, it should also be noted that by refusing to call the man she was currently living with her husband, Jesus rejected the notion that merely living together constitutes marriage. The Bible views marriage as a formal, legal, public covenant between a man and a woman. But I don't say this to a thirsty woman. This thirsty woman didn't want marriage anymore. She just needed intimacy regardless of the legality of it. She thirsted so much more than she imagined. And so it's here with all her dirty laundry just in plain view, completely vulnerable now, completely at a loss for words. She could either run or curse him, or she could now be more open to considering the greatness of who is this Jew in front of us. Just a few more moments, and we're going to see the next moment. The wanton sinner acknowledges the Savior's sanctity. The wanton sinner acknowledges the Savior's sanctity, and we see that in verses 19 and 20. The woman said to him, sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now, follow me here, and I know we're going long. Something's happening to this woman. She can't dismiss the fact that this man is no ordinary man. She can't deny that something extraordinary has taken place. But again, she doesn't know what she doesn't know. So she, she concedes that Jesus is really something else, that he is, he's, he's amazing, he's insightful, he, he, he's, he's unlike anybody else that she's ever seen before. He's definitely spiritual, but she's not able to bring herself into the full awakening as to his deity as of yet. So she immediately returns away her conversations from explaining her past to him 
to instead wanting to understand the present. And so she questions the who, what, and where of this externalized Samaritan worship that was on her mind. And honestly, you can't blame her. Uh, she doesn't know any better. If, if you're having a conversation with a perceived prophet of God, then maybe he can settle the issues that you've grown up with about sacrifices and places of worship. Maybe his omniscience stirred something inside of her. Maybe she was re-incentivized in that moment to be religious again. You see that happen with people's lives. People have near-death experiences or you have a health concern or somebody from your past or something from your past shows up and people go, maybe I should go back to church. Maybe it's time to get right with God, never knowing that they were never right with God. But that's just the tip of the iceberg because look at what this Savior does now. The next moment, the weary Savior reveals his demands. And I'm going to go through this quickly. He says, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Our time is fleeting, but that whole, there's a whole sermon in those verses. There's a whole sermon. In fact, Pastor John has written a book about it, about worship. But just for our purposes tonight, just so you know, the reason that Jesus had come, the reason he was at this well was because verse 23c, the father seeks people to be his worshipers. And it was the food of the savior to do the will of the father. She didn't belong to the Father yet, verse 22. She worshiped that which she did not know. It wasn't about location of the temple. It wasn't about the place to worship. It was about the person you worship. And I think so many people are just blown away when they see that the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, desire to be worshiped from the inside out. That it's not enough for zeal or religious activity. It has to be according to truth. She didn't have the truth. The Samaritans only had the Torah. They didn't have the full revelation of God. And even if she did, even if she did, that truth wasn't matched with an internalized commitment and loyalty to loving that truth. Her life was hungering and thirsting for love and acceptance of men and not with God. She idolized the creation and not the creator, as the apostle Paul says. She needed to drink from the fountain of living waters. She needed to never return to the well of Jacob in the world of carnality. She needed to beg the son of God to forgive her and save her and give her this well that would spring up to eternal life. And I believe she knows that. She is standing before the greatest evangelist of all time, and now we enter into the second to last movement of this scene, the wanton sinner delays her need. And this is important to see. Look in verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will declare all things to us. See, look, instead of saying, I want to be one of those worshipers that you speak of. So tell me how to drink from the fountain of life. She delays. I know what God wants now. I know what God offers me. I just need one more thing to happen. I just need one more event to take place. I just need one more person of authority before everything can be set in motion. And then I give my life away. 
D.A. Carson goes into a massive discussion that I don't need to unfold here, but it's just to say that the idea of Messiah for the Samaritans was different than the idea of Messiah for the Jews because the Jews had the full revelation of God. Regardless, she said, if just Messiah comes, then I'll know what to do. You know what that's like saying? That's like saying, I thought John MacArthur was going to preach tonight. And so I hear what you're saying, but as soon as he gets back in the pulpit, I'll give my life to Jesus and have everlasting life. Because I know my condition. I know my wrongness. I know my need to give my life to the one who made me. But I've got to write for the right moment, for the right preacher. But you can't wait. You can't wait. You cannot wait. You are not promised tomorrow. You are not promised next Sunday. And she needed to know that, which brings us to our final moment of this extended scene, the climax, if you will. The weary Savior declares his identity. Look at verse 26. Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. There's no he actually in the original. It's I am statement of God. I who speak to you am The one speaking to you is the I am, the great I am. This is the final part of this glorious culmination. The incarnate Christ is revealed, the revealing of the Christ. She's ready for the truth, and here he is, I who speak to you am he. True Messiah, the one who the apostle Thomas said, my Lord and my God, the very one whom she had been speaking with the entire time. Though he seemed weary, though he came to save. Though he seemed thirsty, he alone is the one that can quench the thirst of every man, woman, and child. For his food is to hunger for and to bring glory to the Father. So what about this Samaritan woman? Did she ever receive the living water? I want you to look at verse 28, and this will end our time. So after the disciples came back, we see that John takes special care to make sure that a detail that he doesn't want us to miss is there. Do you see it? She left her water jar. She left her water jar. Why? Because the water she came for wasn't the water she left with. Because the water she left with was bubbling up inside of her to eternal life. As you see your life passing away, you can either long for more of what the world can offer and its fulfillments and desires, or you can remember that you're going to die and what you ultimately long for is not this world, but the world to come. And the world to come is forever. And the world to come that we live in now is temporary and passing. John 6, 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. And that is why the Savior came. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the patience of these people as They listen to your word and thank you for what it is that you have revealed to us. You have come, Lord Jesus, to reveal to us that you are our greatest need. You are the one that gives the gift, the spirit of God that allows us to bubble up into eternal life. You are the one that we hunger and thirst for. Father, let this reality, this Christmas, open our minds to the truth of the manger that the incarnation was more than we ever had thought or could even hope for, that you came not only to die for our sins, but that we might have life in you. Bless the preaching of your word, we pray in Christ's name.
Amen.